Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Canada EHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And if you're a fan of Canadian History X, make sure you check out my other shows, From John to Justin and Canada, A Yearly Journey. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. It helps keep this show going. All right, on with the show. There was a time in the 1960s and 1970s where the man called Canada's first celebrity was so omnipresent he got a second nickname, Mr. Television. He was a reporter, war correspondent, an editor of a top Canadian magazine and newspaper of note, and for 39 years, he was a guest on a panel game show about current affairs. He had his own show where he interviewed some of the most famous people in the world, and over his career he wrote 50 books on a wide range of topics, but to many he will always be known as Canada's history storyteller. He was a best-selling author, but to this podcaster, The man whose story I'm sharing with you today is responsible for sparking my love for Canadian history. I'm Craig Baird, and this is Pierre Burton on Canadian History X. I've always loved history, and I did well in social studies, but I was taught about Confederation, the Cold War, the Northwest Resistance, and the War of 1812, but Canadian history was typically presented to me in a rather boring manner. Then one day I picked up a book by Pierre Burton. I think it was The Promised Land, a book about the settling of the Canadian West at the turn of the 20th century. Suddenly my eyes were opened to a whole new world. It was a history told through a story like a novel, not always focusing on the prominent people who made history, but the ordinary people who lived it. I was hooked. Pierre Burton's story begins in 1898 when Frank Burton, his father, arrived in Dawson City as the Klondike Gold Rush was at its height. Pierre described him as eternally curious and someone suited to be a university professor. He'd been offered a position at Queen's University, but by the time he heard he was hired, he was already on his way to the Klondike. His plan was to stay for two years. Pierre said of his father, he was a jack of all trades and a master of most. Laurie's Beatrice Thompson arrived almost a decade later in 1907 to take a job as a schoolteacher. She was a gifted writer whose work was published in Family Herald and Weekly Star and Saturday Night, among other publications. 
and for a time Frank taught French in the community and Laura attended his classes. They soon fell in love and married in 1912. Eight years later, their first child, Pierre, was born on July 12, 1920. By then, Dawson City's heyday as the golden city of the Yukon had tarnished and many Klondikers who were driven to the north by gold fever went back to their lives in warmer climates. Gone were the days of prospectors arriving by the hundreds each day. The population was a mere fraction of what it once was. Pierre's life began here, and for the first eight years of his life, this is where his curious and inquisitive nature developed. He explored the empty buildings that once housed people hoping to find their fortune. He walked through the wilderness on hikes with his parents and took journeys on the river in a large boat his father had bought and rebuilt. In 1932, his father was offered a job in Victoria, BC, and under the shadow of the Great Depression, the family made the move in search of a brighter financial future. That same year, Pierre joined the Scouts. He'd been running with a bad crowd and this helped him carve a new path. He said, One thing saved me, and that was St. Mary's Boy Scout Troop. According to Pierre, the troop filled a void and gave him an anchor they just didn't have within the public school system. He had also dipped his toe into journalism when he published his first article. He said, The first newspaper I was ever associated with was a weekly typewritten publication issued by the Seagull Patrol of St. Mary's Troop. He remained a scout for seven years, and while in high school he started his own newspaper, which he sold for one dollar to fellow students. Called Schoolboy, it was written on his mother's typewriter and was filled with cartoons he drew. After high school, Pierre attended the University of British Columbia with the goal of getting a journalism degree. And during the summers, he returned to the Yukon to work in mining camps. At the university, he wrote for two newspapers, the student-run UBC and the Vancouver News-Herald, where he covered the campus beat. You have to remember that during this time, the Second World War was also happening, so Pierre joined the Canadian Officers Training Corps and only took two weeks of training after graduation before he joined the staff of the News-Herald as a full-time journalist. His job in 1941 was to report on guests coming and going from the hotels of Vancouver, and he quickly proved himself to be highly adept. While covering one hotel convention in the city, he submitted seven different stories in one day. Then one day, after finishing his work, he sat down to read some comics, which his editor certainly didn't like, so Pierre was fired on the spot. When his editor found out that Pierre had scored a new scoop earlier in the day, he hired him back immediately, and he was soon promoted to night editor at the newspaper. And as the Second World War raged on, many able-bodied reporters and editors were overseas with the Canadian Army. So with a lack of qualified individuals in the newsrooms, Pierre was promoted to city editor, becoming the youngest Canadian daily newspaper editor in the process. He said, I had no business being city editor at that age, but I wasn't about to argue. In February 1942, Pierre then made the decision to go overseas with the army and proved he wasn't just a great journalist, he was also a great soldier. Pierre quickly moved up the ranks. Promoted to Lance Corporal, he attended non-commissioned officer training and was made a basic training instructor and eventually promoted to Corporal. Hoping to learn as much as he could, Pierre attended every training course offered. He wanted to be the best trained soldier in the entire army, and when he was made captain, he went on to train as an intelligence officer. Training was an eight-week course that before the war was spread out over two years. He said of that time, Our nights were spent at our desks, our days in lecture halls or in the open country on military exercises. Pierre trained from 1942 to 1945 when he finally arrived in England, and despite his hopes, he never saw combat. 
But while in England, he fathered a child with a British woman named Frances. According to Volume 1 of his biography, Starting Out, she told him she was going to marry a British man she knew and Pierre would have no part in raising the child. He wrote, I didn't know her full name and I don't know it to this day. Soon after the war ended, Pierre returned home to Canada. Pierre returned to Canada and his journalism career. In 1947, he married his wife Janet, with whom he had eight children. And that same year, the newlywed left his wife to go on an expedition to the Nahani River with pilot Russ Baker. Located in the Nahani National Park Reserve in the Northwest Territories, the area is beautiful, yet it's said to be haunted and cursed. There are stories of mysterious disappearances, and a few gold prospectors have turned up dead with their heads missing. This has given the area the nickname of the Headless Valley. It's in the territory of the Dene people, but there are stories of another indigenous nation that once lived there before they suddenly disappeared. It's theorized that they moved south and eventually became the Navajo. Legends also speak of creatures of white that lurk in the caves located in the valley. Pierre wrote as he left on his trip, I'm off on the first leg of the adventure assignment of the year, an airborne dash to the South Nahani's legendary Headless Valley. Pierre headed into this journey and they didn't come out scot-free. Russ and Pierre were snowed in for four days, dealing with temperatures so cold that the keys on his typewriter froze. Upon his return, the account of the trip was published in the Vancouver Sun and picked up by the International News Service, giving Pierre his first taste of fame on a wider scale. Later that year, he moved to Toronto and began to work for Maclean's. Founded in 1905, the Canadian news magazine reports on Canadian issues such as politics, pop culture, and current events. But before I continue, a quick warning. The next part of the story uses racist language, but I'm sharing it with historical purposes. One of his first columns was printed in the magazine, and it was titled, They're Only Japs. Published on February 1st, 1948, the article was the first account of what Japanese Canadians went through during the forced internment during the war. Pierre interviewed Marie Suzuki, a school teacher whose career was ruined by the internment camp. He was also very critical of then-Prime Minister William Lyme Mackenzie King's government, citing greed as a major deciding factor in the creation of the camps. His friend and colleague, June Colwood, said, Burton would have ten ideas and two of them would be brilliant, but that didn't bother Pierre. He would have another ten the next morning. In 1950, Pierre was anxious to see action in the Korean War. He'd regretted missing out on the action during the Second World War. To get things moving, he wrote two profiles in late 1950 about Brigadier John Meredith Rockingham and Colonel Jacques Dextras. Both profiles were highly flattering of the men. So the Canadian Army believed that Pierre would have a pro-war stance if sent to Korea. And they would be surprised by what Pierre went on to write. In February 1951, Pierre was sent overseas as a war correspondent for Maclean's. Almost as soon as he arrived, he was critical of the war and wrote of the suffering of the South Koreans calling Seoul the saddest city in the world. He reported that Canadian soldiers were frustrated by the hilly terrain and how they felt like pawns. He wrote, Can you win a war in this tragic year of 1951 as you win a prize fight by brute force and in the 15th round? The harshest criticism was levied at the American army stating that the white middle-class officers were callous towards their own soldiers especially if they were black or Hispanic. And due to this criticism of the army, his work was heavily censored several times by the Canadian government, and he complained that his work was turning into lies and half-truths. 
and for the rest of his life, he felt that Canada's involvement in Korea had been a mistake. At the end of 1951, he returned to Canada and was made the managing editor of Maclean's. Soon after he got his first taste of television, on September 9, 1952, he appeared on a news program the name of which is lost to history. He said the experience was equal to a drowning man in a sea of lights and cables. He admitted later that he did not see its potential or that he would ever have a role to play in Canadian television history. And he would be wrong. In 1953, he published his first book, The Royal Family, which covered the history of the British monarch from Victoria to Elizabeth II. It sold well, but was far from the sensation his later books would become. In 1956, he published The Mysterious North, Encounters with the Canadian Frontier. This book covered his travel columns from Maclean's from 1947 to 1954. Once again, it sold well and solidified his role as one of Canada's top intellectuals. The book also earned him his first Governor General's Award for nonfiction. The next year, 1957, was a landmark year for him and his growing celebrity. First, he joined Close Up, a current affairs program on CBC which is mostly forgotten today. Then he joined a new show called Front Page Challenge. This Canadian panel game show about current affairs and history became a landmark show. Airing weekly from 1957 to 1995, it featured noble journalists attempting to guess a recent or old news story linked to a hidden guest. Contestants would ask the guest questions until they solved it. It featured nearly every Canadian Prime Minister from the 1950s to the 1980s, as well as noble people including Ed Sullivan, Boris Karloff, Maurice Richard, and Malcolm X. Pierre often did well on the show except when the guest was a sports star. He failed to identify Gordie Howe, Mr. Hockey himself, on five different appearances on the show. Although he did guess the identity of this man. That leaves the Montreal Canadiens. You play yes. for them? Yes. You were a player and not a co not on the managerial side, is that correct? Yes. And have you played within the last two years? Yes. Are you French Canadian? Yes. Uh, you're Rocket Richard, perchance? <laughs> In case you need help, that's Quebec's most famous hockey player and the inspiration for the book, The Hockey Sweater, Maurice the Rocket Richard. Meanwhile, Pierre was becoming a staple of Canadian TV screens and with that he added a little something to his wardrobe that became a trademark, the bow tie. For the rest of his life on every television or public appearance, he wore a bow tie. He said, what was good enough for Franklin Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, and Harry Truman was good enough for me. And by the end of his life, he had over 200 bow ties to choose from. 1957 proved to be a busy one for Pierre. Not only did he premiere on Front Page Challenge, he also narrated the National Film Board documentary City of Gold. This short film depicted the Klondike Gold Rush at its peak when would-be prospectors struggled through harsh conditions to reach the fabled gold fields over 3,000 kilometers north of civilization. Using a collection of animated still photographs, the film juxtaposed the Dawson City at the height of the gold rush with its bustling taverns and dance halls with the more tranquil Dawson City of the present. Documentarian Ken Burns has cited this documentary as inspiration for his own films and style. City of Gold was also nominated for an Academy Award for Best Short Subject Documentary. It's available to watch for free on the National Film Board website and app, and I'll add a link to my show notes. The documentary also inspired Parks Canada to get involved in preserving Dawson City and Pierre suddenly found himself to be a rising star, but this was just the beginning. 
The Klondike had always been a part of Pierre's life. It's where his parents met, where he was born, and where he spent part of his childhood. And in 1958, he decided to tell its story and wrote Klondike, The Last Great Gold Rush. He spent his evenings and weekends working on the book, and he became obsessed with the history of it and putting it on paper. And it paid off. Klondike became a big seller and established the style of historical writing Pierre would become known for. The style appealed to readers raised on boring books written by dry academics. The book had a transformative effect on his writing and taught him he could write narrative history which was more like a novel than an essay. The White Horse Daily Star said of the book, This thrilling story is at once first-rate history and first-rate entertainment. The book also earned Pierre his second Governor General's Award for nonfiction. The same year he published one of his most famous books, Pierre joined the staff of the Toronto Star as a columnist where he wrote whatever came to his mind. His column began in 1958 and became known for tackling many social issues, including the criticism of apartheid in South Africa. In 1960, he wrote one of his most famous columns which exposed anti-Semitism in Ontario's resort industry. To do so, he conducted an experiment. He sent letters to 106 resorts under the name of Saul Cohen, requesting a room for two weeks. The next day, he sent letters to those same 106 resorts under the name of D.M. Douglas. Although letters from Saul Cohen arrived earlier at the resorts, the replies typically stated the resort was fully booked and were somewhat rude. That is, if the resort even replied. Only one resort, the Green Gables Lodge in Muskoka, was willing to give a room to Saul. Meanwhile, replies from the resorts to the request from D.M. Douglas mostly said they had a room available the same week Saul Cohen requested. To make sure no resort was off the hook, Pierre published the names of all the resorts that refused service to Sal Cohen. The column had a huge response, both positive and negative, but regardless, it led to change and resorts in Ontario could no longer discriminate in the future. What was clear was Pierre was also a prolific writer, and his appearances on TV made him a hot commodity. Mamie Maloney of the Vancouver Sun wrote, I've reviewed so many Pierre Burton books these past few years I get dizzy wondering how he manages to toss them off in between columning, TVing, radioing, but that's Pierre. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. In 1961, his family became the inspiration for his most beloved book, The Secret World of Og. The children's novel told the story of Penny, Pamela, Peter, Patsy, and Paul, all named after his own children. And if you're noticing a pattern in those names, well, you're not mistaken. In the fantasy adventure, four children, Penny the leader, Pamela, her common-sense sister, Peter, whose life ambition is to become a garbage man, and Patsy, who collects frogs in her pockets, set out in search of their baby brother, Paul, better known as the Polywog, who has vanished mysteriously from their playhouse. The Secret World of Og was based on the whimsical stories he told his daughters a decade earlier, and the book really was a family venture. The words were Pierre's and the illustrations were by his daughter, Patsy. Although Pierre's publisher was skeptical about the book prior to publishing, 
and became a massive hit, selling out in its first run. It also received rave reviews. The Vancouver Sun wrote, The Secret World of Og is an absolute delight and may just be the best thing he has ever done. Of all his books, this was Pierre's favorite, and for the rest of his life he typically received dozens of letters a week from children across Canada who loved it. Since its publication, it sold 200,000 copies in four editions. And if you thought Pierre was about to rest on the laurels of his success, well, let me dissuade you of that notion. He was just 42 years old and he had already achieved so much, but in 1962 he launched the Pierre Burton Hour. It was a talk show where he interviewed famous individuals while also tackling controversial subjects. Pierre seemed unstoppable. Or was he? In May 1963, Pierre wrote a column in Maclean's magazine called Let's Stop Hoaxing Kids About Sex, where he argued that premarital sex was a fact of life and that he would not object to his daughter being sexually active before marriage. He wrote that he hoped she would have the good sense to have sex in a bed and not in the back of a dirty automobile. This was very much against the notion of the time which placed premarital sex as a sin or taboo, so the blowback of this column was immense. Outrage and boycotts were called for by many readers of Maclean's and the publication was inundated with angry letters. Pierre wrote, I was called more nasty names than anyone else in Canada. Maclean's responded by firing him. He was fired by the publisher, not the editor, and Maclean's worried over lost ad sales rather than the response from readers. He said, The arguments I had were not with the editorial side, they were with the business side. His show was also suffering in the ratings and was panned by critics who called Pierre Wooden on screen. In the first season, the show broadcast 195 hours of TV with 406 different guests. Pierre stated in his autobiography that critics hated the show and the network refused to renew it. But Pierre was not about to let any of that keep him down. He rebranded it as The Pierre Burton Show, switched to a half-hour format and worked on improving his on-screen performance. He also looked for new guests that could boost the ratings, and the new show was sold to six TV stations. In 1963, he did an episode about the Font de Liberation de Quebec, a militant Quebec separatist group that aimed to establish an independent Quebec through violent means, including bombings and the future October crisis. The FLQ episode featured an interview with a little-known law professor named Pierre Trudeau. This interview introduced Trudeau to English Canada, and Pierre became an ardent supporter in 1968, he signed a petition urging Trudeau to run for the Liberal leadership. He said, Trudeau's the guy who really excites me. Trudeau represents a new look at politics in this country. He is the swinging young man I think the country needs. It was a bit ironic of Pierre Burton calling Pierre Trudeau a young man when he was just a year older. Meanwhile, in 1964, Pierre interviewed homosexuals about their lives. The network airing the show, CBC, never re-aired the episode because of complaints from viewers, but this episode cemented Pierre as a man ahead of his time on many social issues, and he was not afraid to speak his mind. There is in this country a syndrome, which I call the you-can't-say-that syndrome, and I've been coming up against it most of my life. People are always saying, oh, but you can't say that. You can't say that. And I think there's only one answer to people who say that, and that's to question them, to say why. Pierre would go on to interview many other famous individuals over the next decade, including Malcolm X in 1965, comedian Lenny Bruce in 1966, and Bruce Lee in 1971. 
The blowback at McLean's, the controversy at CBC, that didn't stop Pierre from pushing for social reform. In 1965, he wrote The Comfortable Pew, which was critical of the Anglican Church. In the book, he stated that church leaders need to accept birth control, premarital sex, and homosexuality. It was an immediate sensation. The Anglican Church bought 7,000 copies to give out to its ministers so they could read it and preach against it, which many did. It was estimated that 600 articles were written about the book in its first months of publication. The Regina Leader Post alone did eight different reviews of the book, which greatly raised its profile, but also made Pierre enemy number one for many who read it. Pierre said, I was called all sorts of names, devil, saint, heretic, prophet. By the mid-1960s, though, it seemed as though Pierre Burton was everywhere. Globe and Mail columnist Dennis Brathwaite said Canada was now living in the Burton era. He said, quote, He is on every television program, on every Canadian TV channel. Our children lisp his name, our teenagers take his advice on sex, our wives curtsy his image. In 1965 alone, Pierre published The Comfortable Pew, My War with the 20th Century, and Remember Yesterday. The next year, he published a cookbook called Pierre and Janet Burton's Canadian Food Guide and along with another book, The Cool, Crazy, Committed World of the Sixties. Between 1953 and 1966, he published an astounding 15 books. In 1967, the Canadian Authors Association named him Man of the Century. Now, rather than the 20th century, the association was likely referring to Canada's first century of 1867 to 1967. And with his success in Canada, offers began to pour in from the United States, but Pierre had no plans to ever leave the country he loved. I long ago decided that this was my country, that I was interested in living here, not in the States. I could have gone to the States and done well, I think, had some offers, and that I wanted to speak to my people, and that if they listened, I wouldn't care if, if anybody else listened. As the 1970s dawned, Pierre Burton was Canada's best-known intellectual, he had published The Smug Minority in 1968, which dealt with the lack of freedom in some aspects of Canadian life, and had several best-selling books. He had his own show and was a panelist on the always popular Front Page Challenge. For two years leading up to 1970, he'd been researching a new book on the construction of the Canadian Pacific Railway in the 1870s and 1880s. The ideas had been in his mind for the previous 12 years, but he hadn't quite put pen to paper. He invested countless hours and money in research. Some sentences in the book would cost $100 in just research alone. Sitting down in his home office in 1969, he took the phone off the hook and told everyone he was in Mexico. Over the course of one month, he pounded away on his typewriter and wrote The National Dream. This book, which would be spread over two volumes, covered the construction of the Canadian Pacific Railway from 1871 to 1881. He worked from dawn to dusk, doing nothing but writing and revising. One four-page section of the book was rewritten 14 times. He said, I do not need, or even want, alcohol or sex. The second volume, The Last Spike, was published the following year, covering the railroad's construction from 1881 to 1885. That book earned him his third Governor's General Award for nonfiction. Both books were massive hits, becoming instant bestsellers and sparking a new interest in Canada's history as a result. Throughout the 1970s, Pierre focused primarily on Canadian history. In 1972 alone, he published an updated version of his 1958 Klondike book, a picture book about the Canadian Pacific Railway, and by October of that year, he had four different books on the bestseller list, including The National Dream and The Last Spike. 
1973, he co-founded the Writers' Union of Canada to advocate for the rights, freedoms, and economic well-being of Canada's writers. That same year, he got personal with a book about his father called Drifting Home. His books on the CPR were then turned into a CBC miniseries in 1974 called The National Dream, which Pierre narrated. A year later, he explored the influence of American culture in 1975's Hollywood's Canada. In 1976, he wrote My Country, The Remarkable Past. This book covered Canada's history, focusing on stories of obscure individuals. It's also one of my favorite books. In 1977, he wrote The Dion Years, about the Dion quintuplets, and in 1978 published The Wild Frontier, which told more stories from Canada's past. Throughout 1979, Pierre worked on his next great book, which became a two-volume set about the War of 1812, was The Invasion of Canada, covering 1812-1813, which was published in 1980. Then he wrote Flames Across the Border, covering 1813-1814, which was published in 1981. Both books were massive commercial successes. From 1970 to 1981, he published 11 books, an average of one per year, and Pierre had no plans to slow down. He started the 1980s with the two-volume hit series on the War of 1812. He followed it up with The Promised Land, Settling the West in 1984, Vimy in 1986, and The Arctic Grail in 1988. In between all the history, he shared the first volume of his own autobiography called Starting Out in 1987. That book and its sequel, My Times, published in 1995, were both very helpful in crafting this episode. And while he wasn't busy writing, he also served as the Chancellor of the Yukon College from 1989 to 1993. And by the 1990s, Pierre was synonymous with history. He said, I never set out to be a patriot or a popular historian. I just liked storytelling. After publishing The Great Depression in 1990, he followed it up with Niagara, A History of the Falls in 1992, which he'd been wanting to write for three decades. He said, quote, I've had it on my mind for 30 years, and it was on my list to do. But, for the first time, the book sold poorly, then marked a decline in Pierre's career, but not by much. In 1994, he was presented with a new award created by Canada's National Historic Society. This annual award became known as the Governor General's History Award for Popular Media, the Pierre Burton Award, and is the highest award for a historian in Canada, and the recipient has flown to Ottawa to receive it from the Governor General of Canada. As a personal side note, I was nominated for this award this year, but unfortunately, I didn't win. Pierre Burton continued to write throughout the 1990s, publishing 12 books over the decade. However, five of those books were picture books and three were anthologies based on columns he had written. He was in his 70s now, and he was, finally, slowing down. In 1998, he was inducted into Canada's Walk of Fame in Toronto. And the life of Pierre Burton nearly came to an end in 1999, when he had a series of strokes and nearly died from congestive heart failure. But death wasn't going to take him yet, and Pierre Burton still had a few more books to write. As the new century dawned, Pierre published Marching as to War, Canada's Turbulent Years in 2001, Cats I Have Known and Loved in 2002, and The Joy of Writing in 2003. He followed those with Prisoners of the North, which profiled five people whose lives were intertwined with the Arctic in 2004. Even in his 80s, he was writing 2,000 words per day. And during that year, a CBC poll for The Greatest Canadian listed Pierre as the 31st Greatest Canadian. 
And with his literary career winding down and his position as one of Canada's greatest storyteller historians firmly established, he said, We need our heroes. We need our legends. We don't think we have much of a history in Canada, but we do. I hope I have proven it can be given in an interesting way. In October 2004, he appeared on the Rick Mercer Report where he gave celebrity tips on the best way to roll a joint using books as a surface. First of all, you need a good rolling service. May I suggest either the National Green or my latest book, Prisoners of the North. Avoiding novelty or colored paper, I prefer white paper to add to your mix. And being in Ontario, we always use hydroponic. Many did not realize that for the previous four decades, Pierre had actually enjoyed cannabis recreationally. And as he reached his 84th year, he openly criticized Canada's laws regarding marijuana. He said of his appearance, I've reached the stage in life where I don't give a damn what people say or what people think. He added there were worse things in life than smoking a joint. And as for the book he rolled his joints on in that segment, Prisoners of the North, it proved to be his last. Throughout 2004, he dealt with ill health and had trouble walking. He told his longtime agent and friend Elsa Franklin, When I feel better, I'll get the typewriter and I'll write some poetry. Throughout his life, Pierre had a cavalier attitude towards his own death. In the 1990s, he said, I could go tomorrow. I don't care. I've had a good life. On November 30th, 2004, shortly after the publication of Prisoners of the North, Pierre Burton died of congestive heart failure. We begin tonight with some sudden and sad news. CBC has just learned that Pierre Burton has died. The 84-year-old author died today of heart failure. Then Prime Minister Paul Martin said of Pierre, his passing silence is a great Canadian voice, but his work will live on to enrich the lives of Canadians for generations to come. Rick Mercer said, He chronicled the history of Canada, and he made history exciting. In his final message to Canadians, Pierre wrote, I am so proud of the fact that my books of Canadian history have given the reading public some idea of where we have come from as Canadians. There was no funeral. He did not want one. Nonetheless, a celebration of his life was held a few days after his death. Over 500 people, including former Prime Minister John Turner, Rick Mercer, Margaret Atwood, and June Colwood attended. His friend, Governor General Adrian Clarkson said, He gave us our story. He gave us our narrative. Prior to his death, his childhood home in Dawson City was turned into a writer's retreat in 1996. Each year, it provided funds and a two-month stay for writers to work on their manuscript in peace. Over 100 writers have used it so far and published dozens of manuscripts that they have written in the home. It has become one of his greatest legacies. Comedian Mike Meyer summed up Pierre Burton's impact in his own book on Canada, stating, Pierre Burton was the Ken Burns of his time. Pierre Burton is a hero to me. He taught us that we do have stories to tell. I couldn't agree more. But there's one more story about the fascinating man that was Pierre Burton. In 1978, Pierre Byrne appeared on 90 Minutes Live, a show hosted by his friend Peter Zowski. Zowski was, was well known to Canadians as a radio personality on CBC, but his TV show was not doing well in the ratings. To help, Pierre came on the show to demonstrate a food processor. And while talking about the efficiency of the food processor, he opened the processor and stuck in his hand to stop the blade that wasn't quite done spinning. Yeah, now it's going to work. Now it's going to work. Watch this. You have to be very fat on this thing. Oh, oh. 
No, you see, that's what you shouldn't do. That's a good. Is there a doctor in the house? I, I, there are two doctors backstage. Not the brightest move from Candace intellectual as the blade cut his finger down to the bone. Now, rather than panic, Pierre simply pulled his hand out and hid it behind his back and continued talking. Peter looked and saw drops of blood the size of quarters falling on the floor, and he quickly went to commercials. Luckily for Pierre, the next guest was a doctor who stopped the bleeding and Pierre was rushed to the ER for stitches. Pierre wrote of the incident. The affair even made the pages of the National Lampoon, which I believe, thoughtfully, presents me as a typical Canadian bungler. I hope you enjoyed that episode and our look at Pierre Burton. Information from Penguin Random House, Canadian Encyclopedia, Canada's Walk of Fame, The Taiyi, Wikipedia, Vancouver Sun, Whitehorse Daily Star, Ottawa Citizen, Toronto Star, National Post, Windsor Star, Citizen of the World, Living with History, and Starting Out. This show is researched, produced, and written by me, Craig Baird, with the help of Dila Velasquez. Audio production and design by Rosalind Kufour. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. If you enjoy this podcast, then please check out my other podcasts, From John to Justin, Canada, A Yearly Journey, Pucks and Cups, and Canada's Great War. We love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those in my show notes. Until next time, I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X.